My name is Tom Rubens. I'm the author of a novel called Wide Illumination, which is part of a trilogy of novels called the Illumination Trilogy. I'm going to read chapter eight from Wide Illumination. In this chapter, the central character in the novel, Richard Lane, is going on holiday as a student with his friend Ray. They're going to Germany. Ray was late, which was unusual for him. Richard glanced up at the big yellow lit clock and then checked his ticket to remind himself of the time the train would be leaving. Ray was late, which was unusual for him. Richard glanced up at the big yellow lit clock and then checked his ticket to remind himself of the time the train would be leaving. Well, only a little late, he said to himself, seeing there was still nearly half an hour to go. He was, he felt, getting over apprehensive. He watched the people forming the line by the platform entrance. Several were young, about his age or a bit older, deeply suntanned, carrying rucksacks. He imagined they had done a lot of travelling and found himself comparing their rucksacks, which had a broken-in look, with the one he had only recently bought. From behind a luggage trolley, Ray appeared, smiling brightly, rucksack on his back. Ray's thinness seemed inappropriate to wearing a rucksack, but this initial impression passed as Ray came forward, hand extended. Sorry I'm late. I thought I'd mislaid some of my German marks, but I haven't. You've already got German money? Yes, at an exchange bureau a couple of days ago. I thought, smiled Richard, that we'd have to wait till we got to the other end. I didn't know about exchange bureau. Well, there's one here at the station, opposite platform three. Ray glanced at the clock. You've got time to go to it if you want. I'll get us a place in the queue and you can leave your rucksack here. Okay. Approaching platform three, Richard saw the bureau sign. He was relieved that there were only two people waiting and stood behind them. The number of German mark notes he received was more than he expected. Well, said Ray on his return, loaded with marks? Loaded, no, but I've got a fair number. As they waited, Richard listened to the different languages being spoken by the suntanned people. He recognized French and assumed another was German because of the heavy guttural sounds. Another sounding a bit like French but spoken faster, he took to be Italian. Eventually the platform gate was pushed open and the queue started moving forward. Richard handed his large ticket with printing partly in English and partly in German to the elderly ticket collector who tore off the first of its four perforated parts. The collector then took Ray's. From their tickets, they checked which section of the train they should go to and saw from the numbers along the side of the carriages that it was near the front. Their compartment was already quite crowded, filled with the sound of other languages. Richard found himself saying, pardonnez-moi, as he indicated to a young man that wanted to get by to reach his seat. As he did so, a smile passed across Ray's lips. When they sat down, Richard asked him, Ray asked him what it felt like to be forced to speak a foreign language. Painful, he grinned in reply. Actually, you could probably have spoken English to him. Still, it's good for you to get away from it as much as possible. It only hurts at first, with a mock compassionate expression. A whistle sounded, and the train made a sudden but smooth movement forward. The flattish landscape that spread out in all directions once they had cleared the city's outer suburbs was one Richard recalled from his holiday trips, which had been all to resorts on the south coast. 
In fact, he remembered they had all been to places quite near Dover, though he had never seen Dover itself. This he would be doing for the first time later today. As the minutes went by, he realised that Ray, like himself, preferred looking out of the window to talking, and neither of them said much. Meanwhile, most of the other passengers continued to be very vocal. Eventually, a sheet of sea appeared when the green horizon dipped, and Richard guessed that Dover was now quite near. The sea disappeared for a few minutes, then came into view again. Ray looked at his watch. We'll be there in about a quarter of an hour. Will we see the White Cliffs? Not from the train. We'll have to wait until we get to the seafront. As soon as he stepped out of the carriage door onto the platform, Richard noticed how much fresher the air was in comparison with London. Though warm, it had a skin-tingling quality he had not found in the city environment. He and Ray followed the other people along the platform to a large waiting room, through the windows of which Richard saw a wide covered passageway, daylight at the far end. Through here, said Ray, they check our passports and then we can walk down to the ferry. As they emerged from the passageway onto a broad ramp that led down to the boat, Ray tapped Richard's shoulder and was pointing leftwards. There are your white cliffs. Seeing them high above the town's skyline, their white brighter than, than he had expected, his eye followed the wide curves which marked the borderline between clifftop and chalk face. Richard found himself thinking of what he had learned about Dover's role in World War II. It was, he remembered, the place where the retreat from Dunkirk had ended in 1940, and one of the places from which the Allied invasion of France had been launched in 1944. That craggy whiteness, then, had been the backdrop for two crucial wartime events. Spectacular, aren't they? said Ray. Richard nodded now thinking in a general way about the war. The idea returned to him of men and women reaching the profoundest levels of experience during this period. A quick current of feeling for the distant, silent chalk faces passed through his stomach, and although the cliffs directed his gaze skyward, the strength of his feeling was not diminished. Ray had moved a little ahead of him, and he caught up with him. They walked onto the ferry, past two men in naval uniform who, Richard noted, were speaking to each other in a language which sounded like French, but wasn't exactly that. It's Flemish, said Ray, in case you're wondering. Richard concluded that Ray's words must have been prompted by a puzzled expression on his face, and he grinned, Flemish, eh? It's a variant of French spoken in Belgium. These sailors are from Ostend. Then Ray glanced ahead of him and around. Shall we have a drink? Is there a bar? Of course. And remember, no closing time. We've left Britain behind now. In the bar, Ray bought two bottles of lager. The bottle labels were new to Richard, and he found the beer stronger, with more distinctive taste, than the kind he was used to. Before he had finished the bottle, he began to get a little hazy and suggested sitting down. They went over to the table by the window. Through the glass, the cliffs were visible. Seeing them again, Richard felt a renewal of the feeling he had had before, but now stronger because of the effect of the beer. On impulse, he decided to tell Ray about it. He spoke only a few words. When he had finished, Ray looked at him thoughtfully, 
then said, that's interesting, very interesting. He poured the rest of his bottle into the glass. I get the impression you're basically looking for things to attach yourself to, things from the past, and so things from the present too. Richard considered this, and it seemed accurate. He nodded. Ray continued, and that's good. It's, the sign that it's a sign you're taking a long-range view. He drank the remainder of his beer and then asked, Do you know much about the war? Not much. Only what I did in history at school, plus some television programs and a bit of private reading. From what I've gathered about it, what interests me most of all is the experience it must have been for many people in the same boat together. Everyone facing the same danger, the same enemy everyone having to pitch in and do his bit. He looked out of the window and back at Ray. I've never known that kind of experience. Neither have I, really, Ray smiled. Maybe we're in the wrong generation. I mean, if we'd been born in the 1920s, we'd have been old enough for active service in the war, or in the period just after it, when its effects still overshadowed everything. As things are, we arrive too late. Missed the whole show. Were you, Richard asked, born in 1944? Yes, a month after the D-Day landings, as it happens. I came along that following year. Just then, Richard heard the throb hum of the ferry's engine, starting up and felt slight vibrations on the patch of floor beneath his feet. Well, he said, at least this holiday's one show we won't be missing. It's a pity we weren't in time for the other one, too. Ray smiled again, pushing back a lock of black hair that had fallen across his forehead. About the war, do you remember my telling you that Sartre was in the resistance? Yes. There's a passage in one of his essays that I think you'd find moving. It was written at the time of the liberation, and it goes now. How does it go? Ray closed his eyes, and after a few moments, began. We were never more free than under the Nazi occupation. We had lost all our rights, beginning with the right to speak. We were insulted daily and had to bear those insults in silence. And because of all this, we were free, precisely because the Nazi poison was seeping in our thoughts. Every true thought was a victory. Ray's eyes suddenly opened. How's that for memory? Terrific, replied Richard. He had felt his way into the words, and the description of inner, unspoken defiance reminded him of feelings he had had about bullies at school. He tried to imagine the kind of situation Salt was writing about. He regarded the most important part of it as the experience of sharing deep emotion. Through the window, he could see that the boat had now moved some distance from the shore. Though the cliffs were not as high as before, the sight of them kept his mind on the idea of sharing. The idea stayed with him even when the cliffs disappeared from sight. It soon became associated in his mind with the fact that the places he was on his way to had been under Nazi occupation. In fact, his journey would end in the country where Nazism had originated. Thank you very much for listening. I'd be most happy if you could do a review of this chapter. Thank you again.